Welcome to Compassion Compass. While most of us recognize that treating others with compassion is important, many of us struggle with turning the compass of compassion toward ourselves. We live in a society that encourages us to beat ourselves up in order to get ahead. However, this only leads us to feel more anxious, insecure, and disconnected. In this podcast, I make a space for honest and vulnerable conversations about the self-compassion journey in order to help you, dear listener, orient your compassion compass inward to meet yourself with unconditional understanding, kindness, and support to better weather the storms of life. I am Dr. Regina Lazarovich, a clinical psychologist and your host for today's conversation. Can you let go of the mindset that one day you'll win? Can you let go of the mindset that it has to be Can you let go of your mind? Now that's a race I'd like to win. Can you look me in the face a bit? Cause I'm afraid I will. Can we have a little fun? Hello, wonderful listeners. This is Regina. I am super excited about today's guest, health coach Isabel Foxen-Duke. Isabel graduated from Tufts University with a BA in Sociology and received her certification in health coaching from the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. She is also the editor of Mirror Mirror, Reflections on the Way We Look, an exploratory anthology of body image-related prose. Isabel cares deeply about giving the gift of sanity around food to as many women as possible. In fact, I am one of those women. I took part in Isabel's Stop Fighting Food Masterclass program, and it was truly a transformative experience that allowed me to loosen myself from the grip of obsession around food and body image. I definitely consider Isabel to be one of my mentors. In today's episode, Isabel and I discuss the importance of self-compassion and the work that she does with helping women, quote, stop feeling crazy around food, the ways in which diet culture harms all of us and contributes to weight-based stigma and eating disorders, the role of race and class issues in the creation and maintenance of weight-based bias in our culture, why dieting is the number one risk factor for disordered eating and eating disorders, Why weight loss is not about willpower, Isabel's take on emotional eating, dismantling the concept of, quote, food addiction, Isabel's personal history of an eating disorder, and the moment of self-compassion that was the true beginning of her healing journey, and so much more. If this episode speaks to you, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a nice rating and review for Compassion Compass on iTunes. This will help it reach more people who need to hear the self-compassion message. I would also love it if you would share this podcast with anyone who you think would benefit from it. 
And finally, I am producing this podcast on my own because I truly believe in the important and life-changing role of self-compassion, but it also requires a good amount of my time and financial resources. I would be very grateful to you if you could support Compassion Compass financially on Patreon.com. Just go to www.patreon.com slash C-O-M-P-A-S-S-I-O-N P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And now, here's my conversation with Isabel Foxen-Duke. Watch me fall in now watch me Welcome to Compassion Compass, Isabel Foxenduke. I am so excited to have you here. You have been a personal mentor for me, um, and I am really, really excited about this interview. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure and an honor. Yeah, very glad to be here. Thank you so much. Um, So Isabel, I would like to start Um, about asking you about the importance of self-compassion in the work that you do. So I work with women who are struggling in their relationship with food, in their relationship with body, their relationship with body image. Um, my uh, tagline, which um, if, if anyone's new or hasn't you know, heard my work, which I imagine will be many people listening to this, my tagline is, I help women stop feeling crazy around food, right? And which is sort of an unfortunate reality for so many people. I, you know, sometimes I often say women because I primarily work with women, but really for so many people and growing numbers of people of all genders. Um, And so this is, um, you know, we live in a time where there's an enormous amount of pressure on people to look a certain way, eat a certain way, uh, be a certain way. We are a thin, obsessed culture. We are um, an incredibly weight stigmatizing culture. Um, And so, you know, the, the primary core of my work is really to help women navigate um, really, really complex, you know, uh, society and, um, not harm themselves with food and not harm themselves around their bodies, um, in a culture that's really encouraging them to do so. Um, most of my clients struggle with things like binge eating. They struggle with diet, constant obsession without around food, constantly dieting, chronic, quote, quote unquote, chronic unsuccessful dieting, which I think is what, you know, the experience of most dieters, um, and just generally feeling like they're constantly stuck in this loop of, you know, okay, this time I'm going to do it, and then I feel like a failure when I can't, right? And this constant success-failure dichotomy comes up all the time, which, you know, is really um, the, uh, you know, it's just sort of the norm in our culture. It's the norm in our culture to sort of have this uh, relationship with our food and relationship with our body that is about achieving something and getting it right and doing it perfectly. And I have to look this way or else all hell will break loose. Right. And it's a really harsh, really oppressive and really harmful culture that we live in. And self-compassion, I think, you know, is sort of one of the, the key antidotes to this problem. Right. I mean, I'll I'll just speak for my personal experience and then I'd be happy to see if you have, you know, kind of other questions that you want to jump in with. But you know, when I was 
dieting, right? When I was in the hell land of, okay, I just need to lose, you know, this many number of pounds, or I just need to get thin enough, or I just need to make my body look this way or whatever. And I was constantly trying to figure out how am I going to do it? What am I going to cut out of my diet next? Okay, maybe if I only eat this much, maybe if I only eat this way, maybe if I, you know, just really pay attention to my food and chew a certain number of times or whatever the hell it was, right? You know, whatever the crazy thing was, I was sort of obsessed with like this goal for fear that I would be just this disgusting, horrible, unlovable person if I didn't succeed. Um, and for, you know, just kind of striving, just feeling this need, like I need to be thin in order to be okay. I need to be thin in order to be loved. Right. And what I actually really needed to do was practice kindness to myself and sort of realize that all of these noises, all of these harmful, oppressive noises are kind of are, are really the problem, right? I am not the problem, right? My body is not the problem. My food is not the problem, right? It is all these external noises that are the problem. And I, I, and being able to practice compassion with myself is, you know, I think for a lot of different reasons that we can go into in this conversation, like one of sort of the key antidotes and that sort of comes up in various different ways as a key antidote in healing our relationship with food and healing our relationship with body and actually being able to eat quote unquote normally right without being on this constant diet binge chronic unsuccessful failure yo-yo roller coaster yeah yeah you know like one of the things that i really loved about you know your message and as a participant in your program is that you helped me um really understand and identify that a lot of those um, messages that I have internalized that have, were creating shame and really kind of keeping me stuck were really coming from this external source of diet culture. Um, yeah. You know, which is what you talked about. I, I would love it if you could just kind of expand on that a bit more and talk about diet culture and, you know, the harmful role of it in in you know, for people who are struggling with body image and, and food issues? Yeah. Well, so again, I'll speak from my own personal experience because I think it's relatable. And I think, you know, most of us are unfortunately have pretty similar experiences, you know, give or take the details. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> when I was dieting, so I was put on my first diet when I was three years old by a mm-hmm. pediatrician. Right? And I, I say this often when I tell my story. What's interesting about that is as a three-year-old, so first of all, I'm three, so I have no idea what is going on, right? Somebody's just like, you need to be thin, and you're like, yep, I need to be thin. As a three-year-old, it's so, so sad. It's sad that that happened, but uh-huh. it's like, you can imagine my whole childhood after that point, I just took thin is good, fat is bad as a given. I never questioned it. It's just the way the world was. Right. What's interesting is that my doctor also felt that way. My parents also felt that way. People who were not three years old, right? Like just adults in just like growing up, it was just like, yep, the sky is blue and thin is good and fat is bad. It was an unquestioned thing. And, you know, the more sort of research and, and the, the more we're sort of kind of coming out with this understanding of, okay, oh my gosh, like a three-year-old who is like a, you know, high on the baby BMI scale for whatever, this is not, you know, a reason to put them on some sort of, uh, you know, like basically, I mean, I don't think, I think people don't think that they're on starvation diets, although most diets are starvation yeah. diets. That's the point. It's yeah. just get your, starve your fat off. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's not, I don't think it's, it's amazing to me. And I think that, that so many people that were involved in just my own 
you know, sort of diet experience as a kid, it just never even occurred to them to question it, right? And that's most people's experience. Most people are walking through the world in our society, in our culture, thinking thin is good, fat is bad, like as if, you know, it's just the sky is blue and thin is good as fat and fat is bad, right? Like no one no one really questions this. No one really thinks about it. And that was certainly my personal experience. My personal experience the whole time I was dieting was like never really, you know, to think it was just like, it was just obvious. It was just a, oh yeah, duh, and is good and fat is bad. You know, despite the fact that, you know, it never like, where did this come from? Like, is this biological? Like, no, because we know that we know that first of all, this hasn't always been the case. Although I think people, again, they, they think it's always been the case. I don't think they even think to ask the question, why is this? Why do I think this way? Can you give a bit of an education about that? Like what is the origin of diet culture? Um, Oh, it's a really, really complicated questions and historians, (laughs) historians, the, the, the few like fat activist historians that I know, um, fight about it all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Like actually, I think that people like to think that, um, this is something that, uh, well, so for a long time, the party line was, um, you know, and there were definitely was a shift that happened like kind of around the time that of the agricultural revolution, like sort of industrialized agriculture came along. And also, um, when food became more readily available to people of different classes, um, fat phobia, right. So meaning stigma of weight and weight based discrimination really comes into play in a much more aggressive way when, um, like low income people basically are able to access, more calories, um, and things like sugar, which again, when this happened is actually sort of, um, it's a little bit, I think, you know, I used to just tell my clients, because this is, you know, this is, is certainly a big deal. There was a massive shift in the United States at a certain point, at different points in the United States, when again, low income people were growing in size, because, you know, cheap sources of calories, like the cheapest foods actually tended to be, you know, uh, foods that would, you know, were kind of high in sugar, like they were refined carbs, you know, um, things like that, high caloric foods, just basically when calories become available and low income people are able to get enough food, all of a sudden fat is villainized. When in the past, um, prior to obviously thinness was associated with poverty, right? And so it was actually desirable to be bigger, um, prior to this economic shift, it was actually beautiful to be bigger prior to this right. economic shift because, you know, it meant that you were, you know, you could afford it. It basically meant that you weren't starving. It meant that you had a luxurious life. It meant that you probably weren't working in the fields, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so certainly there's economic ties to it. But again, I think the exact origin of when this, sh- this shift happened, there's, there's multiple points, there's multiple shifts. So like, for instance, the agricultural revolution in the United States or agriculture, like sort of industrialized agriculture really coming into play in the United States sort of post World War, or like around, I think it was around like World War II ish time. when this really starts to like, blow up. Um, Certainly, I mean, Virgie Tovar, who's a fat activist that I know and you know, she wrote a piece about um, sugar and how actually sugar became heavily demonized when poor people or, you know, low income people were able to access it and able to eat, you know, eat it, put it in their tea in uh, in England, right? I mean, like, and this was, you know, I think probably, I don't want to get my dates wrong again. I am not the historian here, but this was <laughs> Probably, I want to say during the industrialized revolution, yeah. and this was during sort of you know 
um, kind of um, probably like somewhere in the 1800s, that kind of thing. So there are different points in time when um, A, there's a shift from fatness being uh, kind of the beauty standard to thinness being the beauty standard. And And I think arguably overall, the key takeaway here is that it's heavily related to class. Right. Um, and sort of what, as, as are most of our beauty standards, quite frankly, heavily related to class, you know, anytime you're talking about class, you're just like a jump skipping away from talking about race, right? So, you know, these are kind of our, our, our beauty ideals around thinness and fatness. Again, the, the exact dates and the exact moments in history where things changed, um, and things have moved and shifted over time are kind of up for debate and people kind of talk about different points in time where these kinds of shifts happened. But there is, there is no doubt. I think that there's a trend between, um, uh, beauty ideals related to thinness and fatness and beauty ideals related to class. So without getting in over my head, I'll just share that. And then again, and there's, you know, several like great books that people can read about this. Glenn Gazer writes about this. Um, there's, you know, lots of really super interesting information about sort of how these trends shifted in the healthcare industry and all sorts of, um, areas of society. Right. And I will link to that, to Virgie's article and to that book. Um, and I would love to know though, you know, um, what is maintaining it? Like, let's talk about like what's going on in our culture that's maintaining um, this thin privilege. Um, I would argue that class is still a big component in this um, in this dichotomy. I mean, like right now, more than ever, we have a situation where thinness and fatness is very, very split across class lines. Um, so I would argue that it is still like a heavily class related issue, a uh, race related issue. You know, these are things are all, they all intersect with each other. Right. Um, that being said, you know, for instance, and I'll just give you, and I think that also comes even with food, right? So like, for example, you know, the, the, the stereotype of like the woman who, you know, is married to a millionaire and like her job basically is to go to soul cycle and, and drink green juice, you know, like that's all she has to do with her life and her time. And she has the money to do it. And like, that's, you know, that's sort of like the, the, the ultimate archetype or even like the celebrity archetype, which is not very dissimilar. Um, like they're basically, it's like their job, they have all the resources in the world and they're all their, you know, all the time afforded to them to basically just like look that way. Um, so yeah, certainly class, uh, plays a role. I think, I mean, certainly plays a role today, perhaps more aggressively than ever. Um, and I will say also as far as how this, I mean, this all being said, I think what's challenging about this is that, you know, bodies are naturally diverse and always have been, right? Like, this is the key thing is that back in the day, like we've seen, I'm sure you've seen like the Paleolithic, like Venus sculpture, mm. um, like the Willendorf uh, sculpture that's sort of become a little bit of an iconic piece of art in the body positive movement. Uh, you know, there have been larger bodied people in existence forever, right? Um, This is not new, right? I think that people like to think that fatness, however you define it, is a new thing. It's a new, it's an epidemic, right? And the reality of the situation is that, you know, sure, you know, I think that, you know, weights have changed, you know, certainly over time, again, with things like industrial agriculture. Um, There's not nearly as much famine in places like the United States or, you know, other parts of the Western world, certainly, as as there were in other times in history. 
Um, but for sure, you know, fatness has always existed and body diversity has always existed. There have always been that thin and fat people in, in all different societies, even when people are basically, you know, doing similar behaviors. Right. And that's really interesting. So, you know, no matter how much money you have, right. If you have a body type that basically is, you know, a larger bodied body type, right. Um, there is not much that you can do about that genetic profile, right? In order to become thin, in order to substantially change that, you would have to do arguably pretty disordered and harmful things. Um, yeah, so that's, I think, where, you know, things get really complicated is like, you know, sure, there's a class component and sure, there's some like, you know, there's, there's um uh, some ways in which, you know, behaviors of sort of and lifestyles of different classes can interrelate with weight. At the end of the day, I think something that makes this very complicated is the fact that genetics ultimately play this huge role in how our bodies look, right? And not just genetics, but just, you know, unknown epigenetic environmental factors. Um, and so, you know, you are in a situation where, you know, people are just, you know, irrespective, again, irrespective of sort of your, your class situation, you know, you are going to be, you're probably going to have the body that you have, right? Like, yeah. that's the, that's the probability um, in the long term, certainly. And so, you know, how, and so, you know, people are just sort of, at some point, it becomes what I've called in like sociology class, like, ascribed status, meaning like it's just afforded to you at birth, you know, like it's just, you know, we, we, we attribute different status. Um, we, we attribute status and we attribute privileges and we attribute, um, disadvantages and as obviously in, in addition to privileges to people on the basis of size and irrespective of, you know, whether or not that's class related or not, those privileges are distributed, right? So that's just, you know, why do we distribute those privileges? Probably lots of reasons, probably class is one of them. But at the end of the day, you know, we uh, do have this, um, we have developed for whatever various political and social reasons, this intense fat phobia in our culture, and this intense um, uh, glamorizing of thinness in our culture. Right. And there's and, a big industry behind yeah. it, too, right? Like, it's a, yeah. it's, I don't know, like $60 billion industry. The, yeah, around. totally. The weight that loss is, industry. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's probably like a major, it's probably like a core driving force in the past, let's call it 50 to 60 right. years, right? Yeah. Like the weight, the weight loss industry really took hold. Fat phobia existed far before the weight loss industry, but the weight loss industry really turned it into something way beyond what it ever had been before in like the 1960s right and probably fueled you know the eating disorder epidemic that we currently have um and, and i would love for to actually talk about that a bit more right because this is this is something that i really again found so helpful about the you know becoming more educated in all of this is the role of the of the you know weight loss industry and the diet culture in the development of eating disorders and you know maybe we can talk about binge eating in particular because that's one that you have experience with and that's one that you talk a lot about yeah i mean i think that binge eating disorder is 
you know, I think eating disorders are by and large share a lot more commonality and similarity than people think. Binge eating is one symptom that somebody may experience when they're engaging in disordered eating behaviors. And when I say disordered eating behaviors, by and large, I'm talking about um, restriction around food and attempts at weight loss as sort of a core um, like sort of foundation of what I would consider to be like disordered eating. Um, so the number one, uh, like, uh, risk factor for disordered eating is dieting, right? Which, which sounds obvious, but it's actually really important, right? Like, yeah, really and, go into that. I would love it if you could just like <coughs> really explain that. Cause again, my audience is, you know, coming from different places and different, you know, vantage right. points of knowledge about this. So yeah, so the number the number one risk factor for eating disorders is dieting. Right. And so if you think about it, and there's again lots of different research on this, lots of sort of like kind of complicated ideas on this. But if you think like, you know, for various reasons, psychological reasons, genetic reasons, whatever the reasons, for various reasons, different people have different sort of propensities to um, develop quote, eating disorders, again, however you want to define that, the number one sort of risk factor, what sort of is the commonality for most people in our culture who develop eating disorders is dieting, right? It's like dieting is sort of this gateway wherein some people will, they'll diet, you know, some people may, you know, go on a diet, eventually fail at their diet, because that's sort of what happens, right? Like very few people kind of just permanently lose weight and then, yay, unicorns and rainbows pop out of the sky, right? So most people who like try dieting or, you know, attempt to diet for the first time, they'll go on a diet, they'll fall off the diet, they, you know, they'll be like, oh, whatever, I'm over it. Maybe they'll go on another diet, they'll fall off the diet. And it's sort of like what, what I would call like the casual dieter, right? The, the dieter who, they, they're sort of doing it because they're like, oh, I should do this. But nothing ever really comes of it. You know, there's no like permanent weight loss. It's sort of this like, it's like this temporary thing that kind of happens and then it's over. And, you know, it's, it might be a little depleting to their self-esteem at times, but it's sort of, you know, like there's not as much of a compulsion around it. Um, there's not like, oh my God, I need to be thin or my life will end, right? It's sort of like, oh, I, you know, lost a few pounds and then I gained it back and whatever, right? And so there's sort of that kind of quote casual dieter who I actually think, um, to some extent is the the minority dieter, right? the more mm. rare type of dieter. And again, nothing's happening to this person. Like there's no like real benefit to this. It's just sort of like, oh, I'm supposed to do this, so I'll do it. And then, you know, maybe they lose a small amount of weight and gain it back and like whatever. Uh, and then sort of on the other end of the extreme, for some people, you know, when people attempt dieting, right, there are certainly, there's this, uh, you know, kind of other profile of person, right? who will kind of end up going down a rabbit hole. And I think that people end up going down this rabbit hole that I'm about to describe in differing degrees, right? So it's okay, I lost weight, you know, I'm gonna go on a diet, I lost, you know, I'll lose whatever, five pounds before I lose it, before I rebound, before whatever, maybe 10 pounds, you know, whatever the thing is, whatever the number is, I lose a little bit of weight, I gain it back, and usually it's also very common when people are gaining weight back from dieting, they usually gain back a little bit more from when they started, and this is a biological thing that's pretty well researched, like it's pretty common for people to overshoot after they are coming back from dieting, and that's actually normal, that's actually natural, that's actually kind of how your body is designed, your body is designed to wanna to put weight back on and make sure that it kind of has enough to protect itself from any kind of potential threat uh, of famine in the future. 
right? So they put a little bit weight back on. And, and there's, you know, the, the majority of people actually in our culture, I think, and again, will kind of have this thought of, oh my God, I screwed this up, right? Oh my gosh, I, I've, I've failed, right? I've, this is, I've done, oh my God, I can't believe this happened. I was doing so well. I was feeling so good. I was getting all the praise and all the cookies and everyone was telling me how great I looked and I was getting all the status and privilege from, you know, I was being treated so well because I was, you know, I had lost however much weight and now I've lost it. Now I've lost, you know, the status. And not only have I lost the status, but I've even probably gained a little bit more. And, oh, this is such a disaster. I have to get, I have to get back on yeah. the wagon. Right. They blame themselves right. and they want to right. you know, get in control. Right. Yeah. Right. Instead of realizing that this is sort of, you know, the reality of the situation, this is most people's experience with dieting. There are probably biological reasons why this happens, right? There's biological reasons why people, A, aren't usually able to stick to diets for very long. And there's biological reasons why people gain the weight right back and usually more, and, you know, often more some. Um, but in their minds are like, it's my fault, right? Like I, they don't, we don't tend to think of food and eating as an instinct, as a biological instinct in our culture. We think of it as a willpower issue, right? The way I think like people used to think about sex back in the day, although now we know better, right? (laughs) Like, um, and so you know, people think, oh, it's, I'm so, I am, I can't, I lost my willpower. I'm so lazy. I'm so whatever. There's something wrong with me and my brain that I rebounded or that I fell off the wagon. It's my fault. People really, really buy into that. Right. When in reality, culture that says that, right. That teaches us that we should be able to control our weight. Right. Right. You're like, what do you mean? People say like, what do you mean? You know, that you're eating isn't necessarily in your control. Like I put it in my mouth. Right. And that's like saying like, I chose to have sex this way. Right. Or whatever. Like, it's like, sure. You know, like there's some flexibility in like how you eat, but like in the long term, your body is driving you to eat a certain amount of food. Right. In the long term, your body is a biological organism that has instincts. Right. And so instincts are driving most of your food choices most of the time with some wiggle room to like help with scheduling and, you know, other social things. But for the most part, right, especially in the long term, your instincts usually win, right, in the game of biological instincts, right? And so, um, you know, willpower is not really, is not a strong enough force for most people, for some people, and I think for some people it's actually quite sad when you can willpower yourself to do something that your body ultimately does not want. That's very upsetting and that's very unfortunate and that's how people get very sick but you know for the most part right will rebounding is natural and normal and just part of a biologically instinctive process but people don't realize that people think that rebounding is a personal failure right they think that it is a failure of them and their willpower and ugh, you know i'm so disgusting and i'm so awful and i think most of the time they're just they're just they, they're also sort of chasing the dragon of that thin privilege that they got when they lost that weight for the first time, right? So it sort of becomes this this race, this chase to get back, you know, the 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 the, the first thinness, right, if you will, or that first whatever like little feeling of feel good chemicals that they got when they were, you know, satisfying society's uh, desire for them to be thin, right? And they were getting all the social approval from having lost whatever amount of weight 
that first diet or that first time or whatever time that they, you know, lost weight and that sort of proved to them, oh God, yes, this feels good. Everyone loves me. I'm so good because I'm thin. And then they, again, after every rebound, they feel awful. They feel, you know, terrible about themselves and they go back to chasing the dragon. They're like, I got to get back on the wagon. I got to get back to that thinness. And it is this very, it it becomes a very compulsive cycle, right? And so, you know, I, when I talk about eating disorders, you know, I think eating disorders, like most many, most or many mental illnesses, right, can really be understood and explained on a spectrum basis, you know, where the degree of, um, you know, compulsivity or behavioral or whatever's going on in your mind that you're experiencing, you know, different people may experience it more or less, right? So, Definitely, there are people who are sort of maybe higher or lower on this, quote, eating disorder spectrum, but it's all sort of gradations of this um, kind of compulsion towards chasing thinness. And I think for, um, you know, also probably something that is important in kind of most people's, quote, definitions of eating disorder is also, you know, why are they chasing it? And how much is this chasing? Like, what's driving the chasing? Are there underlying psychological reasons why people are chasing this dragon of thinness, right? So, or trying to control food. So for instance, anxiety, right, is a really, really common comorbidity with disordered eating, right? Because if you experience, you know, constant feelings of like fear and you're, you know, you know, feel out of control in your um, environment, right? It's so common to, to kind of fall into this, oh, well, okay, well, I'm just going to lose weight and then everyone will love me and everything will be fine. I will be okay. I will feel safe. I will feel okay once I get back to that thinness or what, or if I keep this thinness or if I just get a little thinner, if it, right? Just again, just chasing that dragon of thinness. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of intersecting mental health issues that, you know, can kind of come into play with disordered eating. It's sort of, I think one of the most interesting things about eating disorders is that they really truly are, you know, require, I think treatment of eating disorders really requires both an understanding of mental health and sort of traditional psychology, as well as social um, forces that influence psychology, right? So it's sort of what is the intersection between psychology and sociology, right? Like, so what is the, um, you know, eating disorders are such an, they're a really interesting field of, I guess, quote, medicine, right? Because in order to understand them, you have to understand both the social forces, the sociological forces that sort of make thinness desirable to begin with, and also understand that, you know, people are going to chase this dragon of thinness to some extent. One of the things that's going to influence a person in this desire to chase the dragon of thinness is are things like underlying anxiety, are things like underlying mental health issues. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I I mean, the thing I want to underscore, like all of that was super helpful, but that your weight is not actually ultimately under your control, right? And that it's that desire to control um, that often results in a deprivation that can have these really kind of dire consequences, right, where... Right. Can you yeah. kind of talk about like, right, like the yeah. why weight loss is not actually a thing that is under our control? 
So most people, like I said, most people who try to lose weight, who try to suppress, you know, everyone's kind of has this right. weight where if they, when they're just eating and just eating according to their biological instincts, right? Like they're just kind of eating like, you know, they're, they're not really thinking about it. There's sometimes they want food and sometimes they don't want food, right? Like it's just an instinct. It, all humans are animals at the end of the day and we have instincts around food. This is how most of us ate when we popped out of the womb. You know, we kind of, sometimes we wanted the milk, sometimes we didn't. Right. And so when we're just sort of following our natural instincts around food, each of us kind of just lands at a weight. Right. So I often say, you know, think about somebody in your life who just has no food issues, if you can. <laughs> and um, you're probably just going to notice like, yeah, they're not really thinking about it. They're not really trying to control anything. They're not trying to eat a certain amount of food. They just sometimes want to eat and sometimes don't want to eat. And it's just totally instinctive. And that's just the way they are. And they just are a size right? They just are a size. They're not trying to be a size. They just are a size, right? It's just what they're, where their natural body goes and their natural instincts just lead them to that space, right? There's a reason why your average person who just eats, you know, sometimes wants food, sometimes doesn't, who's just eating according to natural instincts, they're not wildly fluctuating in weight from day to day or month to month or year to year. They're pretty much just kind of hanging out at some weight, which is called, you know, our natural set point weight, and our instincts are sort of designed to basically just keep us in that range-ish, right? Like give or take a little, you know, a minor, you know, small amount. And so this weight, this set point weight that your instincts just naturally, you know, want you to, are kind of designed to gravitate you towards is not your choice, right? That it's completely genetically, biologically, environmentally determined, right? You don't get to choose your set point weight. You don't get to choose the weight that your body is just instinctively wanting you to be. Um, so when I say, you know, your weight's not in your control, that's really what I mean, right? Your, your natural set point weight, which is really your healthy weight, right? Like the weight that you are when you're, um, you know, or I, I guess it's controversial to say healthy weight, but like, it's just the weight that your body clearly wants to be. There's not really much you can do about that weight in a healthful way, right? So in other words, trying to screw with that weight usually is unhealthful. So what happens? Yeah. And so what happens if people try to screw yeah. with that? Right. 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 So when people try to screw with that weight by, let's say, restricting or going on a diet or trying to intentionally eat less than what they instinctively want, most of the time they will temporarily lose weight. Right. Like you can temporarily eat less for whatever reason, but eventually your biological instincts are going to kick up. They're going to get more and more aggressive. You're going to want, so your desire for food is going to go up, 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 up. You're going to become, you know, so many people, when I was a binge eater, right, when I was dieting, I just thought there, were, there was no amount of food that could satisfy me. I was obsessed with food. I just wanted food all the time. I, you know, I really believed, you know, if I didn't sit on my hands trying not to eat, I would just eat everything that wasn't nailed down because my instincts were going crazy when I was trying to, when I was dieting all the time and trying to suppress my weight, Right. Mm. Um, and so, you know, your biological instincts are just driving up. It's like all of a sudden food, 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 like all you want is food. Right. And again, that's natural. That's a normal reaction to what your body considers, you know, effectively a threat of famine. Like you're, you're eating less than your body wants to eat. You're eating less than your body is calling for, you know, at some point you're those instincts and that animal drive for food is just going to just get stronger and stronger and stronger basically until you crack. So most people crack. 95% of people will crack within like three, like three to five years, right? Like the, I think the exact statistic is that 
95, more than 95% of people will fail at any weight loss method, any weight loss method within three to five years, right? If you lose weight, right, if, a, if your average person loses weight, there's a 95% chance that they're going to gain it back within three to five years. And about a third of those people will gain back more than when they started, right? So this is happening to most people. This is most people's experience. Most people are not going on diets and losing weight permanently. Most people are just yo-yo dieting. They're just losing, gaining, losing, gaining, losing, gaining. They're just weight cycling. They're just going through this suppress, suppress, suppress. Animal instincts get really strong. I lose it. I rebound. Then I feel badly about myself. So I try to diet again. And then maybe I lose a little bit of weight, maybe, right? And then my animal instincts get really strong again. And then I rebound and then I gain the weight back. And this is what most people are doing. Most people are not successfully losing weight permanently and just keeping it off. Not, 95, and I would say probably plus, 95% plus of people are just doing this weight cycling thing, right? And of course, the longer time, you know, this is, you know, just within studies that we have of three to five years, if you expand that to a 10-year study, which is really hard to do for a lot of reasons, one of them being that people drop out of the studies, <laughs> um, you know, it's sort of like most, the vast majority of people are not are just not keeping off permanent, you know, significant amounts of weight permanently. And, you know, again, there's different definitions of significant depending on the study. So there are occasionally, right, you'll have people who would be in sort of this clinically eating disordered category of people who are, you know, kind of, quote unquote, successfully weight suppressing for several years. And they are a very small minority of people, very small minority of people. And super compulsive and disordered, sadly, and right? Because that's what it takes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. we look and we have some research. We've looked at some of these people who are, you know, kept off, quote unquote, significant amounts of weight for, let's call it 10 years. They're so rare that we literally have like a registry to follow these people, right? We literally have, it is so incredibly unusual for people to be able to maintain significant weight loss for such a long period of time that it's like, it's like the rare bird in the sky, right? Like I usually ask people, do you know anyone who's ever lost, you know, let's like 75 pounds and kept it off for their whole lives or, you know, whatever the case may be. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, my one friend, Jane, you know, it's like that's how rare it is. It's like of all the people, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, that it's like that one person or that one here or that maybe that person. Right. But it's very they're, they're a super minority. They're a very, very, very small minority of people who are, you know, losing like significant amounts of weight. And then keeping it off, right? And those, that small minority are typically engaging in what would only be considered eating disordered behaviors in thin people, right? So, you know, like the average, you know, if you think about like a hundred pound loser, like somebody who loses a hundred pounds and keeps it off for 10 years, you know, when we actually look at these people, when we actually study these people and what they're doing, they're doing things that if you were talking to, you know, a thin, you know, like a young, you know, a young thin woman or whatever, you would say she had an eating disorder. You would probably call her, you know, anorexic. They're doing things like working out multiple hours a day. They're doing things like weighing and measuring their meals, three meals a day. They can't go out to eat. Or if they do, they have to go to very specific restaurants and have to order very specific things. You know, like they're just very, very hyper compulsive and super controlling around food in a way 
that, you know, any eating disorder therapist would diagnose as eating disorder. Um, it's something, anything, it, it basically, these, these are kinds of behaviors that we had, we would diagnose as eating disordered in a different body type. If this person didn't happen to used to be a fat person, right. Or a plus size person, you know, we would, we would call these behaviors eating disordered. Right. Yeah. It's so, yeah. So that stigma that, you know, fat phobia is really, really hurting people. And then, you know, you also talk about how binge eating is a reaction to deprivation. Yeah. So this rebounding that people are experiencing, you know, I go on a diet and then I, I rebound and then I go on a diet and I rebound that I've talked about a couple of times in this interview, right? Um, one of the ways that this rebound manifests is like literally in wanting an enormous amount of food right the second, right? So, <laughs> you know, um, you know, there's a, and I think people, again, people experience this and they don't always necessarily name it as binge eating or sometimes they do and they don't even really understand why they're binge eating. I think binge eating is a really um, highly misunderstood phenomena uh, in our culture. But fundamentally, it's like, you know, the person who they go on a diet or they're trying to lose weight or whatever, and then they're like, I can't take it any longer, right? And then they just go and they raid their kitchen cabinets, right? It's like, mm -hmm. okay, whatever's in the fridge, whatever's in the, I don't even care. Like, I'm not even going to go through the effort of, like, making myself a nice dinner. I'm literally just going to eat peanut butter out of the jar right now because I just need these calories right now. Again, my animal instincts are just kicking up. Your body right? is trying to save you, right, because it thinks you're starving. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So this is binge eating is a very physical reaction, right? Binge eating is a very natural physical reaction to deprivation, to restriction, to dieting, to weight suppression, etc. Um, I think what ends up happening for people, the more you diet, the more times you go through this cycle, the harder it is to be on a diet. I mean, that's the int one other interesting thing about dieting and another sort of thing that I think is such an amazing thing about the human body and a wonderful thing about the human body is like, if you're being starved on a regular basis, it will make it more difficult, right? Your, your animal instinct drive to eat will go up and up and up and up and up yeah. indefinitely, you know? And so the more years that you're dieting, right, the more years that you're doing this weight suppression thing, the more binge eating pipes up and the faster it comes. Yeah. So, you know, I always tell people, you know, towards the end of my dieting career, I couldn't go two hours on a diet before my animal instincts would just be like, or, you know, roaring through, right? Like I could not, I couldn't even think about dieting, right? And this is where it kind of starts to become emotional. I couldn't even think about dieting at one point without just wanting to just like dive into the nut butter, like right that second, you know, because it was like my body had was so prepared for the famine that it was like any, any threat, any possible threat uh, any possibility that the food was going to be limited or taken away, my animal instincts would go through the roof and I would just want all the food, you know? Yeah. And so, um, you know, that's, you know, there, there are sort of, it's not just, oh, I'm so hungry because I've been not eating for six months. Again, if you're doing this over and over and over and over and over and over again, so that window gets shorter and shorter and shorter and your animal instincts just start like they're just they're on call, basically. Yeah, yeah I like the analogy, you know, of that, like pulling back a rubber band, like it's going to go back in the opposite direction with the same amount of force. So the more that you restrict and the more that you're trying to kind of suppress yeah. and control actually the more right. quote out of control you're going to feel because it's going to go back in the opposite direction 
Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I would exactly. love to exactly. actually, you know, talk about something else that so many people feel so much shame about, which is emotional eating. And again, I think this is mm. something that's so misunderstood. And you're one of the, you know, best people that I've heard, you know, talk about it. So I, I would love you to to speak about emotional eating and yeah. why it's uh, something that dieters turn more toward. <laughs> Yeah. So I think that in and of itself is sort of where I usually like to start with the concept of emotional eating. So emotional eating is getting a lot of airtime right now in the diet industry, right? And the diet industry loves talking about emotional eating because they love talking about like, oh, like things that we can help you fix that are just keeping you from thinness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. so thin, um, the concept of emotional eating has become quite a buzzword because, and, and because, and quite frankly, people relate to it. You know, if you say to something, oh, do you, break your diet when you're sad, people are like, yeah, I totally break my diet when I'm <laughs> sad, right? Like, that's me. I'm an emo. Oh, that's my problem. I'm an emotional eater. Now, so this concept of like eating over feelings or eating in response to feelings or eating for soothing or eating for comfort, this is, you know, sort of what people call quote unquote emotional eating. And it's um, something that we really culturally have only started to talk about since the diet industry really started to take off. So like basically around like the 1960s, that's the first time I'd ever seen. That's the only time I've ever seen the term emotional eating in any literature ever. Maybe it was the term was discussed or created before the 1960s, but I've never seen it, right? It's a term that literally was invented mutually with the diet industry. So here's the thing about emotional eating is that so this concept of like, oh, eating, you know, eating for soothing, right, is something that we typically see in dieters that we don't necessarily see in non-dieters all that much, Mm -hmm. if ever, right? I mean, like, a non-dieter might be like, oh, sure, they're passing out cupcakes at the office, and, like, you might have one. But this sort of, like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sad I could just really use, like, a, I just really want the ice cream right now, that's a behavior that, by and large, we see in people who have a history of, quote, unquote, restrained behavior, restrained attitudes and behaviors around food. Why is that? Um, good question. We're not exactly sure why, but there are some very, you know, it's not actually that hard to, if you think about it, right, there are some pretty compelling theories as to why that make a lot of sense. So number one, a person who has a restrained relationship with food, a person who is constantly dieting all the time, a person who, you know, is dealing with this threat of food scarcity all the time, right? A person whose sort of animal instincts are like, oh my gosh, the food is going to be taken away, need to make sure we don't starve, is a person who's also probably going to find food pretty comforting, right? Like, it's probably going to find food to be a source of security, right? Like, that's just... That seems straightforward, right? So that's one potential reason why we see emotional eating behaviors in dieters and not really in non-dieters. Yeah, it becomes more um, special for sure. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like it's more it's like, yeah, it's when people are dieting, when people are obsessed with food, food becomes like God, right? Food yeah. becomes this like it's literally like a savior to dieters. Um, or to anyone who's under a threat of restriction or a threat of famine or a threat of deprivation, right? Food becomes so much more special. It becomes a source of security. It becomes, it's so much more comforting, right? It's like all of those things just get ramped up so much when you're dealing with the threat of starvation, which basically is what dieting is. Um, so number two, there's also quite a bit of theorizing that a lot of dieters 
when they are sad, right, or when they're dealing with uncomfortable emotions, it's not that they're eating to comfort themselves. It's just that you don't, their willpower, their ability to keep themselves from hanging on tightly to their diet wanes when they're dealing with stressors, right? Like if I have to take every ounce of energy to not eat the cupcakes in my on my counter, if I have to take every ounce of energy to not, you know, eat the ice cream in my in my refrigerator that my boyfriend bought last night. And ugh, why did he buy that? And I hate that, or that, you know, to not eat my kids like Lunchables desserts or whatever. If I have to take every ounce of energy to not eat that thing, and then I get a phone call, oh, um, your dad's sick. He's in the hospital. <laughs> that diet's going out the window, right? Like I don't have the energy to hang on to my diet, right? So there's also this theory, and this is a slightly different, that a lot of people you know, what they call emotional eating is actually just potentially or could be, I don't have the energy to hang on anymore when I'm dealing with an emotional stressor. And I used to personally relate to that one really stood out to me as, as an, as an interesting thing that I think doesn't get enough airtime. People don't talk about enough. I was in, um, I remember doing like a really, really restrictive program where people, I was, you were basically put on a, a diet and you were told that anything, any eating outside of that diet was quote unquote emotional, right? Or like, you know, you're eating enough food, you're getting the food that you need, which was not true, but you're getting the amount of food that you need. And if you, you need to, you know, just watch out for the emotional eating, you should watch out for eating when you're stressed out. And the reality of the situation is like, is that emotional eating or is that my willpower cracking more often when I'm dealing with emotional stressors, right? Which makes sense. Um, so those are two potential reasons why emotionally we see quote emotional eating right more often in dieters. Oh, I think also a lot of people confuse emotional eating and binge eating, hmm. right? So I think a lot of people, it's like, again, oh, I broke my diet because I got the call, you know, I got the call that my dad was sick or I got, you know, work was really hard today or for whatever reason, you know, my willpower is just waned because I'm dealing with an emotional stressor. But then what ends up happening is I believe that I've now fallen off of a wagon, right? Now I'm like, oh, I failed. I screwed up. You know, I ate the cupcake. I shouldn't have eaten the cupcake. And now I might as well just eat everything. And now I might as well just eat the entire kitchen and, you know, tomorrow start again. Like tomorrow's day one, you know, I've already blown it. You know, I had a cupcake, which was off of my plan, or I had a cupcake because I was sad and now I've blown it. Now I've ruined it. Now I've ruined my diet. I've, I've screwed up. I might as well just go eat the entire tray of cupcakes and like half of whatever's remaining in my kitchen cabinets. And then tomorrow, I promise I'll get back on the wagon. Tomorrow will be day one. Right. We call this like I call this last supper eating. I don't I didn't invent that term, but I don't know who did. But last supper eating. Right. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people also confuse emotional eating and binge eating. So, yeah. So emotional eating is certainly, you know, it's certainly, a, you know, a coping mechanism for what for various reasons. We see it more often in dieters. Right. Even just like classic traditional like, oh, I'm sad. I want a cupcake. Like cupcakes are going to be more soothing and more comforting and more special to somebody who has a long history of not being allowed to eat cupcakes and a long history of, you know, cupcake deprivation, right? Right? Uh, right. It makes sense. But I also think that there's these other things that sort of come up in the emotional eating conversation, right? Like a lot of people, you know, it's not just I'm, I, I'm sad I want a cupcake. For dieters, when they're sad and they want a cupcake, if they eat the cupcake, now they're also, I fell off the wagon, I suck, I can't believe I ate the cupcake, and now I'm going to eat the whole tray. So it can turn into binge eating, right? It can turn into this 
reactionary, oh, I fell off my diet, so I'm going to eat everything last supper and then tomorrow's day when it can turn into that really quickly. Um, And then, you know, also obviously, um, and then I I think in, in a lot of instances, what we call emotional eating is just cracking on your diet, right? For, for people who really are bought into the emotional eating conversation, emotional eating quickly becomes a catch-all for anything I don't think I should eat. Right. And so it's that like um, judgment and guilt and shame because you've identified certain types of eating or, you know, eating at certain times as bad or that you're actually bad when you do that. Right. And wrong. Right. As not only yeah. wrong and bad, but pathological. Even right? though like, it's oh, actually not. Right. Right. Even though, right. Even it's like, who gives a, you know, who cares? It's like, you know, you had a cupcake when you were sad, like whatever, you know, like. Right. And this is back to fat phobia, right? Because it's like, Mm -hmm. that's the main thing that I think is driving that, that guilt and that shame and that, you know, it's it's that, you know, you should be able to not eat, you know, emotionally, or you should just be able to restrict yourself, which. Right. You can't do, right? Like that's right. not that's not real. And in the end, emotional eating is not that big of a deal. Right. right. The only reason out of emotions. Any, yeah. Yeah. The only reason anyone cares about quote unquote emotional eating is because they're so desperately trying to be thin and because thin is so wonderful right. and fat is so awful. Right. Like no one would care. No one would care about emotion. There was no such term as emotional eating that I'm aware of before the nineteen sixties. Before the nineteen sixties, it was just called eating. Yep. And paradoxically, right? right, like the more that you just like are okay and can accept your, mm-hmm. your, your food as it is, right, the more that you can just like give up that control mm-hmm. or that attempt at controlling something that's out of your control, right. the, the, more, the more kind of easy and natural will be. Right? And the yeah, less, I mean, basically the, the more you can let your instincts take the wheel and get out of your own way right? The more natural and quote unquote normal your food is going to be, right? Yeah. Sometimes you might have a cupcake when you're sad, but who cares, right? Like that's not the end of the world. I think, you know, most of the clients who come to me, they're at the point where they're like, you know, having a cupcake when they're sad is not their issue. They're at the point where they're like, oh my gosh, no, when I'm, when I, when the mood strikes, I'm, you know, full on binge eating in the cabinets, having 10 pints of peanut butter, you know, they, they would be thrilled to get to the point where they can just have a cupcake, you know, because, oh, they had a hard day and move on with their life and have it not be a big deal. And that is something that is afforded to people who don't diet, right? That is something that is afforded to people who really are able to let go of restrictions and really just let their instincts just do their, do, do their natural thing. Yeah. But it's, it is very terrifying for dieters because I think dieters, one of the reasons why this concept of just let your instincts do their thing, just eat what you want, is that their only experience of their instincts is when they're binging, right? That's the only, the reason that I feel like dieters are so terrified of letting go. They're so terrified of just quote unquote, like letting their instincts do their natural thing because their only experience of their instincts is these rebounds. Right. So they just assume, right, there's this just feeling of if I let my instincts take over, I would just be in the cabinets all day long, every single day, forever. Right. And that's not actually what happened. Like these rebounds are also temporary when you really let go. It's like, okay, yeah, you know, and when you first stop dieting, you might want a lot of food. You might be like, oh, God, I'm hungry, you know. Um, And then it just eventually just you kind of they just sort of you basically achieve energy balance, right? Like eventually it's just like, okay, like now I'm satisfied. 
and I'm just back to just eating the way I did when I was a kid, right? Or eating the way that, you know, dude over there who doesn't care about food eats. You know, I think a lot of dieters also kind of identify with this label of like, oh, I'm, you know, I have a food issue or I'm a food addict. Um, And can you can you kind of talk about that and why that's, you know, not true? Yeah. Well, we uh, I understand why people have that use that language. I personally and you've heard me tell this story. I used to identify as a food addict because that's what it felt like. It felt like I'm totally out of control and I'm like losing my every time I would be in a rebound period. Right. I would diet and then I'd have my rebound period. And every time I'd be in a rebound period, every time I'd be in a binge eating period, every time I'd be off the wagon. Right. Which is kind of just part of the diet cycle. But I didn't realize that this was a natural reaction to dieting. I didn't realize that this was naturally part of how dieting goes. So I thought, I must be a food addict, right? Oh my God, there's something wrong with me. I'm feeling so out of control. I can, you know, I have one bite of peanut butter and I'm off to the races, right? Like that's how it feels when you kind of fall off the wagon. It does feel like, oh my gosh, I'm like on a rampage. I'm like, I'm like full on, like go. I'm binging. It's crazy. I'm like, you know, it, it almost it feels like a any other kind of binge. Well, like it feels like an a quote unquote maybe perhaps, and I've never personally experienced, but perhaps it 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 feels the way you hear alcoholic binges might feel like, you know. Um, the issue with that, so I completely understand why people say feel, like, oh my god, I'm a food addict, right? The second I have the sugar, I'm off to the races. But what's actually happening is that it's the second they're falling off of their wagon, they're off to the races. They're really, all that's really happening is that they're on a wagon and then they're falling off the wagon and then they get back on the wagon and then they fall back on off the wagon, which is actually a natural cycle that begins with restriction, right? You can't fall off of a wagon that you're not on. Right. Like that's a really important sentence. You cannot fall off a wagon that you're not on. Right. Like in order to be, um, uh, you know, in order to sort of have these crazy rebounds with food, um, you need to first have a period of deprivation. Right. And so is it so, you know, the diet binge cycle starts with dieting. Right. Like right. It starts with dieting. Dieting right? like, is the problem. Yeah. Dieting is uh, the beginning of the binge eating is just yeah. a natural reaction to dieting. Right. So I totally understand why people use that language because that is what it feels like. It's just that you're not when people use that language, they're not they're not um, they're not taking into consideration what's causing these reactions, what's causing these like wild compulsive swings in the other direction, right? Which is the diet itself, right? The diet itself is sort of the the beginning, this whole compulsive process begins first with the compulsive attempt to control weight, right? Which of course, usually for 99% of people fails at some point, and then you're again, off to the way, off to the races on the, in the other direction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that for years, you know, like throughout my whole twenties, I really thought my problem was like, I can't control myself around food. Right. Like, and and yet, no, it was, it was the, the restriction. And, and I think this is something that's not emphasized enough, even in the eating disorder recovery world. It's not. And that's because in the eating, you know, unfortunately the eating disorder recovery world is still very much associated and tied with 
the medical establishment. And the medical establishment in certain the United States and most of the Western world is super, super fat phobic. The party line, the political line, right? The thing that we are all working under the assumption of is that you can control your food and your weight, that eating's not a biological instinct and you don't necessarily get to choose it, right? Like we operate under the assumption that what you put in your mouth is completely 100% up to you. Even though right? there's and no research to support that. That is crazy. Just intuitively, it makes sense. Of course, eating is a biological instinct and you can't control it fully or, or you can't control it for very long, right? Like, yeah. um, it's like how long, it's like I can control my breath for a short period of time, like, <sighs> but at some point I'm going to start gasping for air. Like at some point my breath just has to just do its natural instinctive thing. Like that's really what it's designed for. You know, you can control for short periods, but at some point, you know, your instincts always win, right? I mean, that's how, thank God, right? Thank God for that, right? You know, and so, yeah, like I think that is, um, you know, one of the biggest challenges that people face in the treatment of eating disorders is the fact that right now the treatment of eating, right, eating disorders are a medical condition in quotes, right? Like that is how they are treated by conventional wisdom. They are treated as medical conditions, as clinical conditions, which are, arguably they are. Right. The problem is, is that our medical system is so screwed up yeah. when it comes to thinness and fatness that we can't even treat this issue. We can't treat this issue nearly correctly because we're actually heavily bought in to the problem. We're actually heavily bought in. Our entire medical system is heavily yeah. financially attached, emotionally attached. Right? Our whole medical system is so, so deeply politically embedded with the party line, thin is good, fat is bad, thin is good, fat is bad. And as long as that's the case, and you can control it, right? And the, and the myth of control. Yeah. And as long as that's the case, you know, it's very hard to treat eating disorders. Right? How can you be treated for an eating disorder? How can you be treated for any of the things that we're talking about today, any of the problems that we're talking about today, if you're not willing to challenge these, this idea, right? Yeah. That thin is good, fat is bad, and it's completely up to you to make it, to make yourself thin. Yeah. It's so sad. And I hope it changes. And that's why I'm so glad we're talking about it. And, you know, I want to, there's so much more to say on all of this, but I, I want to actually kind of transition um, to the role of self-compassion um, in your personal life. And my question for you is, um, when is a time in your life when you were most in need of self-compassion? Oh, definitely when I was transitioning out of dieting. I mean, and I'll, I'll extrapolate on that a little bit. Like, sure. there, you know, anytime that I was struggling with trying to control something, you know, that I felt like was, okay, everything, this, this matters so much. You know, it's like every time I got confused that like this material thing, whether it be thinness or the status that thinness brings, whether it be money, whether it be whatever, whenever I, or whether it be work stuff or whatever, you know, anytime I kind of had these moments of like, this is the most important thing. And like my salvation and my happiness depends on this external thing looking a certain way, you know, and there've been a, certainly multiple times in my life where I've experienced it, not just with food, but certainly the pursuit of thinness really brought this out in me. I needed that as those are the times when I have most needed to practice self-compassion being like, you know what, like baby girl, you are okay. Like you are, you know, I'm, we're just going to take care of you in your heart, in your soul, in your mind, right? Like this stuff is not 
what is not what matters about you. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. And how did you, I mean, were you able to gather that self-compassion for yourself when you were actually going through those, you know, hard times of getting out of the dieting or, you know, how did you come, come to discover self-compassion? Um, yeah, I mean, when I was, I will say also like, I think that I had some moments of discovering self-compassion when I had like no other choice, you know, like, like many things, many quote, spiritual lessons, if you want to call it that have come to me when I've just been at the end of my rope and I've had no other choice. Like there were so many times, especially because unfortunately when I was in trying to recover, I didn't have very great guidance. I was going through my recovery process at a time when I'd never heard of health at every size. I'd never heard of body positivity. I, I, no one had ever even suggested to me to maybe challenge this thin is good, fat is bad narrative. You know, I was in eating disorder treatment in this sort of screwed up medical model that, that wasn't actually designed to help me and that couldn't really help me for beyond a certain point right? They could make sure they could kind of, they could control my behaviors only up to a certain point. They could make sure I was eating a certain amount of food. You know, I, I certainly healed certain behaviors, but the core root of the issue I couldn't, could, was not healed in this, in the treatment that I was receiving at the time. And I was struggling so much and I was in treatment for so many years, just thinking like, what is wrong? Why is this never, why am I not getting over this? Like, why am I not finding the answer. Like I have been working with all these fancy doctors and in in these fancy treatment centers, and I've been doing everything quote unquote right to try and get over this quote binge eating problem, which is how I understood it at the time. I didn't understand it as a dieting problem. I didn't really understand it as a true, you know, restrictive eating disorder problem. And I just was like, what is wrong with me? And I just was like, I never, I, I, it occurred to me, I was like, what if I never get over this? Like, what if this is just my life, you know? And like, I think that those were the, those were, I had sort of those kind of hopeless moments where I was really, really had to practice, you know, it was sort of like I had moments of self-compassion that came in those moments of kind of desperation and those moments of like, okay, like, you know, you're doing the best you can and that's, that's all you can do. And like, you are okay. And like, this is your path and for whatever reason, and this is hard, but like you just, there's no, you have to be kind to yourself because you are doing the best that you can. Right. Um, and so, you know, again, for anyone who struggled with anything, and I think even with really, really good treatment, recovering from eating disorders, recovering from any kind of like mental health issue is challenging and it's up and down and it zigzags and it's not linear, right? It's not like, oh, I read this book and now I'm fixed. Like it's complicated. It's messy, right? And so even with the best treatment in the world, even with the best information, even with the most cutting edge research, even with everything that should quote unquote work, like recovering from disordered eating is just a, just a process. And so, you know, being able to meet yourself where you are and give yourself permission to be messy and give yourself permission and like kind of like have it be okay to be wherever you are is vital, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's been my experience too, you know? Uh, And can you, can you talk about maybe a specific instance of that? 
I mean, yeah. I mean, it's so funny because as you're asking me this question, I'm sort of reminded of a story that I tell a lot which is sort of like my big surrender moment story, you know, where I was just, I just, I was trying so hard to get it right, to do it, to do, you know, and I just sort of had this moment, you know, I was like, oh, I'm just going to, I'm going to get my food right this time. I'm going to get my food right this time. I'm going to get my food right. And I have this moment where I was like, you know what? I just, I just can't go after this anymore. I just can't do this anymore. I just can't be so hard on myself anymore. I just, I don't have the energy for this, right? Like I just, what I just can't, I don't have the energy to care about this anymore. Like I don't, I can't, if I, you know, whatever I eat is fine. I can't spend my life obsessing about this and so harshly trying to do this. And and I describe the story as like my moment of surrender of my moment of really like letting go of dieting. But fundamentally it was a self-compassion moment. It, it was birthed out of self-compassion. That moment was birthed out of me deciding that, being soft and gentle with myself was more important than getting my food right. Right. Yeah. I, and I know that story. And if maybe you can kind of, you know, give a bit more details about it, because it was, um, yeah, it would help kind of, you know, illustrate. I, yeah. I, I was going through this period. I mean, again, this was years into my quote unquote treatment. I'd been in and out of rehab a couple times. I'd, um, I was, I had been in and out of, you know, just every single type of possible treatment for quote unquote binge eating you could possibly think of, not just rehab, clinical rehab, but also like every program, every, I was in doing, I did like a Christian program. I did a, this program. I did a, that program. I was, you know, I mean, I was just like up in trying to figure out the answer to this problem. Like whatever it was, anyone who said that they had an answer to binge eating as a pro, I was willing to try it. And I was, I was trying everything. And, um, I, I basically, you know, I was sort of bouncing back and forth from like one, okay, at first I'm going to try, maybe I'm just only going to eat when I'm hungry and stop when I'm full. And I'm just going to really get a handle on my quote unquote emotional eating, <laughs> which did not work. Um, right. nice yeah. effort, Isabel, but your head was definitely in the wrong place there. Um, and then, um, I, and that'll make me thin and everything will be wonderful and I'll never eat emotionally again. And then like rainbows and unicorns will pop out of the sky. No, that did not happen. Um, and, uh, and then on the flip side, I was also trying sort of these more intense, like kind of quote unquote food addiction programs, like food addiction recovery programs where you're like on a meal plan and you're like not eating flour or sugar and you're like rigidly, strictly like controlling everything that you eat. And like, you're just not allowed to break your abstinence. Cause that would be like breaking your sobriety around food, you know, that type of thing. And so I was going back and forth between these two concepts because they were the only one, they were like the two where I was like, okay, it's gotta be one of these. Like it's either I'm a hardcore food addict and I can't have flour and sugar, or I, um, you know, really am not able to restrict and I'm, you know, I, sh I need to be able to eat whatever I want, but I just need to get my emotional eating under control. And I just need to, that's what I really need to focus. But ultimately they were both things that I was just, they were both a attempts at control, right? Like they were both, I, I thought that they weren't, but they so were, right. <laughs> you know, like they were yeah. both ultimately diets, right? Like they were both ultimately, it was just like the, it was just changing seats on the Titanic. It was just, I might as well have been on Weight Watchers or Atkins or whatever, you know, like it was like the same thing. It was just a different version of the same thing. It was, it was make your food look this way and don't screw up. 
that was it, right? It was just different versions of make your food look this way and don't screw up. Make your food look this way and don't screw up. Make your food this way and don't. It was always just a wagon, right? It was just a different wagon. It was just a different, um, uh, you know, wagon to not fall off of. And, and, and I feel like for so long, I just tried to fix this problem by trying to figure out what wagon can I stick to forever, like, what's the wagon? What's the magical wagon that's going to work for me? What's the magical diet that's going to work for me? What's the magical way with food that's going to work with for, for me? And this was a very um, non-self-compassionate effort, right? This was, this was by definition non-self-compassionate because it didn't take into consideration at all my present moment needs, right? Like, it yep. didn't it, – it completely denied that tomorrow maybe I'm going to be feel really sad and I might – you know, want a little like piece of something and that's not the end of the world, right? Or maybe I um, am going out to dinner and I'm going to want like a piece of cake or whatever. Like it just, it completely, it was like, it, it, it didn't take into consideration the fact that I'm a human being, <laughs> right? Yeah. It was, it was, it was, all of these attempts were like me pretending that I was a robot and that I just needed to flip the right switch and then I would be good, you know, and then it would be done. And yeah, and so I think that, you know, kind of self-compassion really comes in for me there. Self-compassion to some extent is about like embracing your humanity, right? It's about accepting your humanity. It's about like being comfortable with your humanity in a society and in a world where we're constantly being told that we should operate like robots. Um, and yeah, and so I think that that you know, there was this moment where I kind of realized, like, I just can't do this robot thing anymore. Like, I just can't do this robot thing. And if that means that I'm a messy human, hmm. that's fine with me. Hmm. And so I think that, yeah. And so and that was like, you know, it was sort of like, okay, whatever my food looks like, I'm not, I'm just, I can't try to make my, I can't fit my square peg into that round hole. I just can't do it. I give up. I give up. And that was my big surrender moment. I give up. I give up trying to fit my square peg into the round hole. I'm just going to eat what I want to eat and just not worry about it. Cause this, I cannot spend my life worrying about this. I cannot spend my life obsessively trying to put fit my square peg into the round hole. And really, you know, again, so this is a story I tell all the time and I've never really thought of it as a self-compassion moment, but it really was a self-compassion moment because it was me saying, I'm okay being a human. Like I acknowledge and respect my humanity rather than, and, and it's okay that I'm a human. I accept my humanness, right? And I'm willing to be a human. I'm willing to be a messy human. And I'm, and I'm gonna accept and embrace my messy humanness instead of trying to get it right all the time and make it this way and be a robot. Mm. Yeah, it was a beautiful moment, I think, of you know, kind of embracing yourself, right? Accepting yeah. yourself as you are and embracing yourself. Yeah. And it sounds like it was also kind of the beginning of your yeah. real healing, you know, like yes. real, yeah. It really was. Awesome. It was the beginning of my real healing. It was yeah. the beginning of any, it was, it was the beginning. It was the first, yeah, it was, it was the beginning of my real healing. And, and certainly my real healing took years and, and arguably is ongoing, right? Yes. Arguably goes on forever. It's a um, process. Yeah. But that was, I would agree. I think that was the moment that I first even started to really understand like what recovery really means mm. well that's beautiful and you know as we are coming to our time i have just one more question for you um, sure 
So what has been the most surprising part so far about your self-compassion journey? Um, the most surprising part is that, you know, the earth doesn't crumble beneath your feet when you let yourself be human, right? Like mm. the most surprising part is that like all hell doesn't break loose when you let yourself be human, right? And that messiness is not the end of the world, <laughs> you know, that's the most surprising part. Cause that's the part I think that that keeps us from, from like letting go and, and being human and embracing ourselves at when we're messy and accepting ourselves for who we are. I think the reason that people struggle with so that so much is because they're terrified of what's going to happen. Like they're terrified if I don't rigidly try to control every single tiny thing, whether it be food or money or work or whatever relationship, right? Like they're terrified that like, it's like the, you know, the handle's going to fly off and that's not the case actually my external world is kind of the same. It's just that my, you know, or better, right? My, my external world is pretty much the same or easier, like, or, or, or cleaner looking now that I'm relaxed and not an obsessive crazy person anymore. In what um, ways, in what ways is your world actually in your experience easier and better now that you're actually working on just like accepting the messiness of, of yourself and of yeah. life. Well, I'm not, I'm certainly, I'm not wasting time and energy, like obsessing, uh, trying to do things, you know, obsessively trying to do, like trying to control things that I can't control. Right. I think that that's like a huge, it's a time, mo most of all, it's a time and energy suck. I yeah. mean, people could, I mean, I could argue, right. Sort of like, okay, I also, I'm not like going through these like crazy rampant binges. Although quite frankly, I feel like that it's sort of like a, um, uh, I, I don't even like to lead with that because I think that people think, oh, she stopped binge eating. She must have lost weight. And it's like, well, no, because I also wasn't dieting like a crazy person, you know. So, you know, those two things are kind of but it is much easier. It's much more comfortable to not be either starving or binging all the time. That's for sure. Uh, much more comfortable to just kind of be quote unquote normal, right? Like to be just, you know, kind of even keeled, you know, sometimes I eat less, sometimes I eat more, but it's all kind of like, oh, whatever. It's like no big deal either way, right? There's, it's not this like ravaging, it's not these intense extremes, certainly on the food front. Um, but yeah, but also I think even more than that, it's just the reason my external world is better is because I like, I have a life today. Like I'm not, my life does not revolve around dieting or binging, right? Like now I have like a whole full life. I am like, I run my own business. I have like great relationship. I like moved to California just for fun on a whim because YOLO, you know, like I like, I like I have a, I have a rich fulfilling life today that would not be possible when I was dieting yeah. that would not be. And I think, and I think, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm using food as an example here, but I'm learning how this is the case in all areas of my life. Like I notice that when I start to get really controlling about work, I can easily fall into like anxious patterns about work. And when I let go, and the fear of course is that if I let go, you know, my work is going to implode and, you know, I'm going to like be bankrupt and poverty, you know, stricken with poverty and blah, blah, blah. And all, you know, those worst fears come out to play when I'm going to relax around work. And the truth is when I relax around work, it's all fine. It's actually better. Um, and so, you know, I'm noticing that the same experience that I had with food is really kind of more of a universal truth rather than just a food specific truth. Um, but yeah, like, 
to answer your question, how is my life better? I mean, there's sort of, you know, on an external level, right? Like I'm not screw. I feel like when you're screwing around trying to fit the square peg into the round hole, all you get is frustrated and all you've done is lost your time, you know, um, and, and maybe even scarred some things along the way. Um, and when you kind of relax and let your instincts take over, like you're just sort of amazed, like, Oh yeah, there is like order in the universe and it, and it, like I don't need to make everything happen. Like things are just happening. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. And I am so grateful um, to have had the opportunity to speak with you. There's so much wisdom. Um, Thank you. And what you Thank have you. to say. Yeah. And so just, you know, where can listeners um, learn more about you? Like where you're up to and how can they get in touch with you? Yeah. So, um, if anyone out there is struggling in their relationship with food, the first place I would definitely start with the stop fighting food video training series. So if you go to stop fighting which I'm sure you'll put a link in yep. the show notes, but, um, stop fighting There is a, like an introductory video training series that sort of just kind of goes into like, okay, like here are some like core principles to understand right off the bat about healing your relationship with food, about ending diet and cycling, about ending, you know, all of this like craziness and dysfunction around food. Um, and also, you know, body image, which the video training series gets into a little bit at the end, but my work in general, like we talk about body image quite a bit. Um, and so, yeah, that's where I would start. Also my blog, people really enjoy reading, checking out my blog at isabelfoxandduke.com. So if anyone is like just in the mood to read more about this stuff and just kind of wants to, you know, doesn't think I'm totally out to lunch yet. <laughs> um, the, check out my blog at isabelfoxandduke.com. You can also sign up for um, like coaching emails there. Like I send out, you know, occasional uh, new blog. I send out new blog posts and stuff via email. People, I'm I'm a communicator via email. I don't really use social media, so that's where I would go. Great. Well, thank you so much, and I will link to all of that stuff. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Cool. My pleasure. All right. Bye. Bye, Regina. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. You can hear this episode again, learn more about today's guest, and donate at our website, CompassionPodcast.org. That's C-O-M-P-A-S-S-I-O-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T dot org. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to play an active role in amplifying its message, please share it with anyone who you think would benefit from hearing it. It would also mean a lot to me if you could leave a nice rating and review for Compassion Compass in iTunes since this would make it easier for more people to find it. The music you're hearing behind me now is by C. Burroughs. Take good care. So can you let go of the light that you were all alone? Can you get out from behind it? It's just a telephone.